Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 11, Where's Your Father? The tension is building as Jesus continues to confront the religious leaders. Why can't they go to where Jesus is going? Will the gospel overcome the principalities and powers? Let's listen in as Steve teaches from John chapter 8. It's very complex, it's very layered, it's got an awful lot to it, and uh, if we really, really went into it, we'd probably be here for a couple of nights, but uh, I did allow myself to go at least um, one full evening there on uh, John 8. So in some ways, John 8 is a very complicated uh, chapter. Some commentators uh, say that it's a collection of of fragments of teaching that were put together by John. Um, uh, for my opinion, I say no. I think it is a very cohesive whole. And uh, in order to understand what's going on in John 8, we're back to a word I keep saying to you guys, which is context. We have to understand the context. And uh, as I said to you, uh, in past weeks, for John, nothing's wasted, and I said, setting is very, very important. Where a thing is taking place, when a thing, a thing is taking place. Remember last week we talked in John 7 that this, this episode was happening uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's why Jesus said, my time hasn't come, and they thought he just meant, I'm not going to go right now, but he was talking about his Kairos time, some of you will remember that. So, Setting is really, really important. Now, in, in chapter 7, this is a continuation with, a, with an interlude of the woman caught in adultery. The, the last verse of 7, the first 11 verses of 8 uh, are, are just kind of an interlude. In, in my opinion, as I've shared with some of you before, uh, I think it is a, an authentic episode, but I think it, it was a fragment and it got misplaced. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because we wouldn't want to lose it. There was such truth there. But if you take that, <coughs> those 12 verses out, you'll see uh, an ongoing narrative that, that is building. In chapter 7, which we looked at last week, one of the key issues is the identity of Jesus. Is he the Messiah? Is he simply a self-promoter? Is he a good man? Is he a troublemaker? And this slowly escalates through the last half of chapter 7. Um, and to the point where the temple police actually go uh, to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So we've got the break of the woman caught in adultery, and now we pick it up again, and there's this rising tension. Um, what we see is Jesus makes a statement, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders... And in this context, when it says the Jews, it really means the religious leaders of the Jews. Um, he makes a statement, and the Pharisees respond in the negative. And, and watch for this dialectic to go on all the way through, where there's the, the move, the, the the narrative goes forward, but it's like a, a it's like a boat tacking into the wind, and uh, it's really really interesting. Um, let me just pray. Lord, I feel like there's so much here that you want for us. I feel like there's so much stirring in my own spirit. And we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. I ask for you to help me. I ask you to help all of us to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, 
Chapter 8 can be examined at many, many levels. And, and as I was preparing this, I, I, I kind of would follow one theme and I think, oh, follow this theme. It, 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 it's got so many things that are going on. But tonight, we're going to look at three main themes. Um, number one is the continued development that John gives to the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. And we've talked about that almost every week. But he takes us further into this. And that, that the Son of God is inseparable from the Father. The second theme is the, the, the theme of truth and freedom. And the third theme is light and darkness. So, could somebody in a nice loud voice read John 8 and start at verse 12... And we'll go through to verse 20. So somebody who can read all that in a nice loud voice so we pick it up on the microphone. Who wants to do that? Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but I have the light of life. Then the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour has not yet come. Thank you. So let's just do some of this verse by verse. Other places we'll move it around a bit. Uh, he said, I am the light of the world. This is one of those famous I am statements in John. There's some really well-known ones, you know, I'm the door, I'm the light, I'm uh, the way, the truth, the light. Uh, but there are, remember, I told you, 24 I am, emphatic I am statements in John. And of course, John is continuing to shout out to us the way he says, I am, the, the depth and the breadth of Jesus' identity as the second person of the Trinity. This is such a huge part. I know I'm reviewing, but... He was dealing with early Gnosticism. He was dealing with the breakdown of the understanding that he came as fully God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he, he never can let up from that theme through this entire gospel, which after all was written about a generation and a half after the other gospels. And he says, if anyone... Uh, I'm the light of the world. And then, and then again, it's inclusive. Just like last week, 
Inclusiveness always threatens the power structures. It always threatens the power structures. I want to look at that verse again. I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm going to say some things tonight that I hope have got application way beyond a, a regular kind of Bible study. And we'll see if we get there. But again, he uses that word, anyone. Remember last week he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. We talked about that. Once again, we see the inclusive Christ with an inclusive invitational gospel. And inclusiveness always threatens the power structures. Power structures are built on exclusiveness, not inclusiveness. You can think of that at any level you want. Uh, Jesus is fully aware of Isaiah's prophecy when he says, I am the light of the world concerning the Messiah. I'm going to give you just two of them. Uh, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. By the way, parenthetically, I encourage you to spend time in uh, Isaiah 40 to 66. Um, It's even been called the fifth gospel. It is so incredibly prophetic. It was written hundreds of years before Christ. And that's where we get really amazing things. Remember Isaiah 53 that just describes exactly what happened to the crucifixion? Well, here we are in, in that amazing section. Again, Isaiah 40 to 66. I, I like to go there several times a year. It's, it's so rich. Verse 6 and 7, here we go. I will take you, oh, I the Lord have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you. I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them, and you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. Let me give you another example. Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus was carrying when he said, I am the light of the world. And as I told you before, in an, in an oral tradition uh, where most didn't read, their, their capacity to understand, to remember scripture would astound us now. Okay? So they, every, he knew it, and the recipients of his words knew what he was talking about. So he says that, and then what are the, how do the Pharisees respond? They say, you're testifying about yourself, and your testimony is not valid. This sets up the pattern for the entire chapter, and it's just like the tension builds and builds and builds. Jesus' reply is based on knowing who he is. I am the light of the world. He is absolutely secure in his identity. He knows who he is and he knows where he's from. Do you know in part why I'm convinced he knows he's so secure about his identity? It's Mark 1.11. It's his baptism. He comes out of the water and the father says, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. His father says, you're mine. You belong to me. That's identity. And I love you. That's security. And I am pleased with you. That is confidence. Just parenthetically, when I got a hold of this, by the grace of God, many, many years ago, raising four sons, and now I'm watching them do the same with my grandchildren. 
I, I try to build this in around the dinner table all the time. Not only that I love you, but, but who you are. For one thing, you're a steward. We're stewards. We're a family. For another, is I'm so pleased with who you are. That's just parenthetically. But that is why Jesus was completely secure in his identity, which is why he had no trouble taking crazy risks, because he knew his value and identity were not in peril no matter what happened. That's a cul-de-sac I didn't know I was going to go down. But that's why Jesus is so confident to say, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Comes out of this place of incredible security. He is saying, and he says in verse 14, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Verse 15, you judge by human standards, and I judge no one. Now, this comes up often in John. We'll get there later in John 12, I think it's around verse 47. He said, I didn't come to judge. But the truth of the gospel has consequences. The gospel itself judges us, but Jesus never comes to judge us. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone. I'm with the Father who sent me. The Father who sent me testifies about me. And the Pharisees go, wow, I see it. It's revelation. Not so much. Their response, they said, is, oh yeah? Well then, where's your father? His response is, if you knew me, you would also know my father. John is letting us watch this rising tension as the powers that be, the dark spiritual powers that are personified in this entire episode are personified by the religious leaders and their system. The powers that be are being confronted by the second person of the Trinity. And they don't like it. You can see it as some religious leaders and Jesus. And that's authentic. But again, it's very two-dimensional rather than three-dimensional. What John, I'm convinced, is talking about it. I'm going to develop this over the next number of minutes. He's talking about this incredible confrontation between the powers that be. I will use that term. It's a Walter Wink term, but it just means the dark spiritual powers. And the power of God, the reality of the second person of the triune God. So then he says, so they, they come up with that. And then his response is, I'm going away. And you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. For where I go, you cannot come. Those are strong words. Those are strong words. He's saying, you, we cannot find the Messiah on our own terms. We live in a time right now, of course, of, of everybody's kind of a mix and match, create your own jigsaw puzzle religion. Right? We know that. But, but John is saying, you come on the, on the terms of God. And the Messiah's invitation. Secondly, he's saying, if you persist in refusing to hear me, refusing to hear my word, refusing to believe in my word, and the key word there I think is refusing, he says there's a result. You're going to perish. You're going to perish. 
And then we have an echo. The third thing he says in that phrase is an echo of what we talked about last week in John 7, 35. When he, remember, this is all the same discourse. But he'd already said to them, you will look for me and you will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. Remember we talked a lot about that? He didn't say where I will be or where I was is where I am. In other words, I live outside of space and time. I talked about that at, at the church I preached at New Life City a couple weeks ago. And do you guys remember we talked about that last week? So here we have the echo of this again. For where I go, you cannot come. He says, you are from below, he told them. And I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. By the way, if anybody cares, if you mark up in your Bibles, if you write in your Bibles, um, that word he was added, just added by the, the whoever translated your version. That it's actually just, it doesn't say, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He says, for if you, knew, if you do not believe, I am, you will die in your sins. Interesting, huh? There you go. There's a freebie. Um, <clears throat> you see this theme John doesn't he takes us deeper and deeper into themes we're back again to chapter 3 Nick he says man if, if you don't understand the things I'm trying to tell you about the world the earthly things how will you understand heavenly things remember we talked about that weeks ago now here he says it even stronger even stronger I'm from above you're of this world. I'm not of this world. You're going to die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. You will die in your sins. We're confronted with this theme of earthly things and earthly perspective versus heavenly things and a heavenly perspective. This isn't Jesus sitting on the hillside over the Sea of Galilee saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is not a sermon. This is a confrontation. A confrontation that builds and builds and builds. And very soon we move into the what's called the passion, the last week. Makes up half of this entire gospel, the last week. You've got to remember the context. Don't forget the same. Okay? <laughs> And so what's their response? They don't let up. They say, who are you? We would say, who do you think you are anyway? Is how we'd say it. Why do we have to listen to you? He who sent me is with me. John 14, 20. I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. There's no separation ever between the Father and the Son. We're going to get to talk about that a lot later on when we go to the cross, right? But he's saying there's no separation. And then you read verse 30, which is a great verse. I'm glad you did. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. I was surprised. It kind of jumps at me when I you know, underline that many. Wow, because it feels like everybody's going, no, 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 no. But it isn't everybody. It's the powers that be. It's the religious leaders. 
There is always a choice, John is saying. In the midst of blindness, many saw the light and the truth of his words. There is always a choice. We get to choose. This week, yesterday, we sent two teams to Nepal. We're having a crazy busy time right now. Some of you know we have a team. The ground team's already there in, in uh, I want to say Santa Fe, Puerto Rico. It's quite different than Santa Fe. Um, the ground team's already there, and um, we've got more people coming in this week, and, and there, we've got people praying all over the world because we know this is also going to be a spiritual battle. But in Nepal, um, the government has changed. And it is proactively doing all it can to stop the gospel. And, uh, but we know that there is always a choice for every single person. And that in the end, the powers that be do not control that choice. Right? Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into the hearts of every man, woman, and child. So, many will believe it is the unstoppable force of the gospel, the unstoppable force of the goodness of God. I love Romans 1.16, says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It carries its own power, the all-by-itself principle. Um, uh, Mark 4.28, it's like a farmer who puts seed in, he goes away, he comes back, there's a crop, he doesn't know how it happened, but all by itself. We carry this incredible gospel that is so powerful. And so the powers that be are very real, but they continually try to puff themselves up. I'm going to share a little more on that in a few minutes. So then Jesus responds to the, those many who did believe. He says to them, he turns to me and says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Anybody remember the word meno, M-E-N-O? It's a word 63 times John uses through this gospel. And it means to abide, to dwell, to be with. We talked about it on the very first week and it comes up again and again. Here it is again. If you meno in my word, remain in my word, hold to my word, abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does it mean? Think about this question. Maybe write it down. What does it mean to abide or to continue in His Word? What does it mean? Maybe we'll talk about that later. I think it's a huge question. It's a huge question for us as individuals. It's a huge question for us as the church in this city and in this nation. What does it mean? <laughs> if you will abide in My Word, you mean by his word we'll talk about that later too this week's episode is brought to you by our monthly donors each month people from all over the world give generously to impact nations you may be one of them we are so thankful for our monthly donors it is your giving that allows us to continue to rescue lives monthly gifts propel us forward as we feed the hungry heal the sick train the forgotten and bring a message of hope to a world in need of a savior so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank those of you who are already giving on a monthly basis. 
we couldn't do it without you. If you've yet to become a monthly donor, a gift as small as $10 a month will make a huge difference in someone's life. Here at Impact Nations, we rescue lives with a really big gospel. Will you join us? Visit impactnations.org slash donate to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. So now I want to move ahead to this second theme of truth and freedom. Everybody still wide awake? All right, if not, the coffee's right over there. Um, Truth and freedom, verses 32 to 36. Would somebody like to read that out, please? 32 to 36. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and you have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. The gospel, beloved, is about freedom. Paul says it in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Uh, A favorite verse, especially I think among charismatics, is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17. The gospel is about freedom. Jesus established this from the very beginning. In Luke's Gospel, the most social of the four Gospels, it's got incredible socioeconomic perspective. It's, it's fascinating. But he, Jesus opens up with what I think is the Magna Carta. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the middle class. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. Religious voices cannot hear this as good news. We see it all the way through this interaction. They continually justify themselves. They deny their own need while Jesus is offering life. The truth will set you free. We don't need it. And they forget the universal truth. And I've got my friend Rosemary with me today, and she would <coughs> Rosalie with me today, and she would agree. I call you Rosemary about every fourth time, don't I? Um, what is denied cannot be healed. What is denied cannot be healed. And what we see is denial all the way through. So they answered him. He's giving this incredible thing. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And instead of saying hallelujah, they said, oh yeah, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? There's a switch, there's an acceleration that starts at verse 32 where the truth shall make you free. And it opens the way for the rest of the chapter. From now on we see an acceleration of rising conflict and tension. And and they're thinking about freedom, they're thinking about political freedom. They're thinking about religious freedom, externals, socio-political, economic. But as always in this gospel, Jesus is going deeper than they are. And he always does that. I was thinking as I wrote that down, I suddenly thought of, of in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus 
created this dialectic with the law. Moses said, dot, 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 but I say unto you, you've heard it said, but I say. And his but I say doesn't contradict, but it says get away from the surface of your religion. And it goes deep into your spirit. I tell you the truth. We're at verse 34 and 35. I tell you the truth. Rosalie, I can't believe I called you Rosemary again. I can't, I can't believe, believe you did either. <laughs> just, you, just call me Fred or Howard or something. It'll be okay. Verse 34 35. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. We're back to Jesus' baptism. He's a son. You belong to me. So what do we get from this? Number one, obviously, sin enslaves. Sin enslaves us as individuals, and by extension, it enslaves the people around us in our oikos, our circle of influence. But secondly, this is Jesus' response when the Pharisees say, Huh, we're sons of Abraham. A son who abides in the freedom of relationship with Jesus is free and will be free with him forever. Jesus is offering both freedom and security. He's taking the whole issue of freedom and truth to a much deeper level. I want, please, for you to be thinking, maybe asking the Lord, for deeper applications for what I'm saying. Freedom and truth are way deeper than what the powers that be, in this case, the religious leaders, are perceiving. And he is taking us to a place of freedom that comes out of meno, comes out of abiding, of remaining in him. Okay? This freedom and truth is so much bigger than doctrinal truth. Notice Jesus says almost nothing about doctrinal truth in the New Testament. Anybody notice that in the Gospels? It ain't there. He's taking us to some deep things. When we think of being enslaved by sin, we usually go to the obvious behaviors that we know that trap us. Most of my working life, I was a pastor. You do lots of counseling when you're pastoring. And I know that people's default perception of their sin is always sexual. That's the worst one. They go boom right there. Or if it isn't that, then it's our compulsions. But it's usually that. But in the New Testament, sin is, is not about so much individual acts and actions. When Paul talks in, in Romans about sin, he's not talking about the time you stole that candy bar to make it trivial. He's talking about sin is itself a force. It is a force, and it is so pervasive, we're under its grip without even knowing it. And it has a lot to do with the insecurity that comes from not being grounded in an identity of acceptance and love. That's where it comes from, I think. 
social systems enslave us. Social systems. The groups we're with. The fellow employees we're with. The whatever social system you want enslave us. You know why? Because we are trapped by our need for the acceptance of our peers. Slave to what others think of us. Slave to our fear of others. Or our fear of their rejection. These fears are huge. They're huge. And the powers that be press those against us all the time. Even fear of thinking or expressing ourselves beyond the expected norms of our group. That one's very real for me. This is a sin that I have to wrestle with a lot. Sin blinds entire social groups. It blinds communities. It blinds nations. Again, we're talking about a force in a system, not just whether you took that apple or you were speeding. Jesus is telling us that only abiding in Him, only relationship with Him, can heal and turn our hearts from the grip of systemic sin. Only the Son can liberate us from slavery and bring us into our real home and our real home is in the synoptics is, is the kingdom of heaven. In John, it's Father's house. That's where we belong. That's where home is. And only He can liberate us from slavery. Can we go one more sec- section here? You guys still with me? Mm-hmm. All right. I want to talk about light and darkness. Another theme in this passage. I told you there's a lot in here, didn't I? And I feel like I'm going fast. Light and darkness, the powers that be. This week I've been thinking a lot about authentic prophetic community. And some of you may not agree with what I'm going to say, but that's okay because you see I don't want to live in the fear of stepping outside your norms and expectations. I think that authentic prophetic community is so much bigger than our liturgy. You know what I mean by that? When we gather, do we, is, are we used to having a time where somebody says, I've got a prophetic word, or thus saith the Lord, or whatever. It doesn't push that away. But that is, that's very small. A prophetic, uh, an authentic prophetic community is bigger than that. It's bigger than if we prophesy over people. Though I'm for prophesying over people. 1 Corinthians 14.3, right? It builds them up, it encourages them, it comforts them. But it's way bigger than that. It is, it's, it's bigger than if we prophesy over people. It's bigger than our politics. It's bigger than our nationality. A pre- authentic prophetic voices are not afraid to speak the truth, even at the cost of their lives. Some of us in this room are as, as old as me. Or older, and we remember, we remember 1968. We remember Dr. King. We remember Bobby Kennedy. Some of us remember people like uh, Bishop Oscar Camara, who said, "When I 
I took care of the poor, they called me a saint. When I said, why are they poor? They called me a communist and they killed me. It's the powers that be. Being a true prophetic people or even person may cost us our reputation. It did Jesus. But embracing and declaring the truth frees us. Last Saturday, I can't remember whether it's on my own personal page or whether it's on my Impact Nations page, but I, I put up uh, um, 12 characteristics of a, of a prophet, not written by me, by, by a guy named John Deere, not the tractor guy, um, who twice has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. If you're curious, go, I think on my personal Facebook page, yes, and you'll see. Is it? Okay. Why, why does declaring the truth set us free? Because we are saying to the powers that be, those incredible forces, truth is more important than acceptance. It is this absence of fear that reveals that the truth has made us free. That's what reveals it. We can sing about being afraid of the cows come home. But if we're still afraid of those things that I talked about a few minutes ago, we're just singing songs. And I personally just sing songs lots of the time. But Jesus is talking about an incredible freedom. A deep freedom. A prophetic community, prophetic people are not frightened to be themselves, to say what they believe, to name what they've seen, and name what they've experienced. A prophetic community are learning to live in the reality of the kingdom of God right now. I say that all the time. A prophetic community, my favorite phrase for the church is the new community. We're learning to pull the future into the present. We're learning to live by the kingdom of heaven now. We charismatics tend to embrace the power ministry of this. Healing, spiritual gifts, etc. And you know I fully agree with that. I teach that all over the world. Uh, And it's a major part of living in the kingdom now. But there is another dimension to being a prophetic community to living kingdom now. And it's called the ethics of the kingdom. It's what Jesus said about how to live life in a new community. He says, verse 31, if you remain, if you minnow in my word, logos, we're back to in the beginning was the logos, If you meddle in my Logos, you are really my disciples. I contend after, I don't even know how many years of ministry, it's getting close to 40, and traveling to churches all over the world, and looking into my own heart, especially, I contend it is so much easier to believe in who Jesus is and believe what he said. And why is this? Because of the powers that be, they're under the control of Satan. The one that Jesus calls, as we read today, the father of lies. I taught you briefly how the powers that be, the spiritual powers that I do not believe are floating out up there somewhere past Mars and we pull them down and we address them. I don't 
I personally, though I may have stepped on your toes, it's okay. I don't believe that's a New Testament model at all. It would have been so far outside of Paul's worldview. I believe the powers that be are the demonic strongholds that infiltrate where we are. And as I share with you, this is how the powers gain control. Every institution, and an institution could be a family. It could be a company. It certainly could be a government or an educational system. But every institution came from the mind of God. Christ calls everything into being. He creates all things. We know that from Colossians 1, 15 to 20, right? He creates all things. And so he creates them with a purpose, a God-given purpose. Theologians call that a vocation. When we turn from the God-given purpose, we step into more of a selfish purpose. We see this all the time with companies. Profit for its own sake, right? Power for its own sake. To move from vocation to selfishness, and selfishness always leads to idolatry. And idolatry always opens the door to the demonic. So let me say this again, and it is every institution. We must be aware of the push of the powers that be. And we must, you may know, abide deeply in Christ. Because the whole momentum of how the powers gain control is from the God-given purpose, vocation, to selfishness, to idolatry, to the demonic. Institutions of all kinds live under the influence of the powers. And the powers bombard these institutions with fear. Fear of losing power. Fear of losing prestige. Fear of losing money. We see in this entire chapter what happens when the powers are confronted with the truth of the triune God and His kingdom. The powers are always threatened by anything that challenges their position. That's what John is showing us all the way through here. Remember, the powers rule by fear, by intimidation, by control. Again, the setting is vitally important for what John is showing us about this confrontation. Because this confrontation ultimately is not Jesus with some Pharisees. It's the powers behind it. It's ultimately a cosmic confrontation. Remember what's happening here with Jesus. Don't picture a nice, quiet group. Everybody's smiling and watching this. Jesus is facing a mob. And the leaders, the influencers, the intimidators want Jesus killed. These are the very ones John wrote about in the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 11. He says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. As Jesus speaks truth and life, the powers literally encircle him, arguing, denying, hating. What we are witnessing is the struggle between God and the evil forces, the powers that be, that seek to rule this world. This has been so real to me this week. It's been very real to me for a long time, but this week it's, it's like in our face. So as we read this, 
again I say, read it carefully, starting chapter 7 of verse 10, and watch the acceleration all the way to the end of chapter 8. Verse 44, Jesus, Jesus calls them out for what and who they really are. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Imagine by now, in this confrontation, their level of rage. And so what do they do? They're reduced to giving him a false identity. Do we not say rightly you're a Samaritan and have a demon? By the way, this is, this is usually the attack against those who speak prophetically, who speak the truth. It's, it's falsehood. It, it's, think, think about uh, Martin Luther King and what was said about him, which was false. Mandela, false. It happens now, false. It's the powers that be. And if we just listen on the news, say, oh, well, they said that guy's actually really a bad guy. Who controls that? The powers that be. Jesus is once again called, calling them to lift up their eyes to the realm of the kingdom, the eternal and the infinite realm. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. He doesn't come into a, oh yeah, well your mother wears army boots. <laughs> he comes back to the place of truth that is compassion. And I believe true prophecy has always got tears in it. You can hear the tears in the voice of a true prophet. But he doesn't sugarcoat or she doesn't sugarcoat the truth. There's compassion there. As they're calling him terrible things, he says, I'm telling you, if you'll just keep my word, you'll never see death. If anyone keeps my word, they absolutely refuse to understand. Notice this. Think beyond the page. Think the powers that be. And think prophetic truth. And watch what they do. They refuse to understand. Oh, we don't understand you. They refuse to hear. They, it is all contradiction, intentional misunderstanding, intentional distortion of what he's saying. These are classic strategies of the powers that be. Awaken people. People of God, awaken. These are the classic strategies. So now we come to the final segment. Verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He's not yelling. He rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Contradiction, misunderstanding, distortion. And the Jews, the powers that be, said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Some of you, if you've got a new King James, I am, am is capitalized, just in case anybody missed it. <laughs> this I am points to the most points most clearly back to the opening of the prologue, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In case we miss the huge scale of what is going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, in case we miss the cosmic forces 
of dark powers and Jesus and his kingdom, John makes the scale of this absolutely explicit. Jesus steps above the fray by simply declaring that he is and always has been and always will be. And it finishes with, and they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Which takes us back to the beginning of this whole episode in John 7, where he says, My time, my kairos, has not yet arrived. And I think I'll say amen. Any comments, any questions, anything new to think about? Yeah, they lived by then in essentially in tents. It's, it's like we would just put up in the backyard a, yeah. a plastic thing, yes. But then they turned right around and said we were never slaves. Yes. They had just done that, so did they forget? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> wonderful point, wonderful point, because the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the, the setting, is, you're right, it's about coming out of slavery. <laughs> and they said we were never slaves. They forgot and the, the powers that be cause incredible amnesia. Mass amnesia. They do. Mass amnesia. If you don't think so, watch the nightly news for a week with a pen and paper. Mass amnesia. And thus concludes this week's episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Be sure to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com. We'll discuss those questions in our third question and answer episode, which is coming up next week. In the meantime, be sure to visit impactnations.com and our Facebook page for all sorts of exciting updates and great content. Have a great week.